And that, my friends, is how America was made great once again. Breaking at this hour, Jimmy Sangenberger is currently at the crossroads of politics and economics. Radio broadcaster master, now the celeb on the web. He's the smarty of the party. He's in cahoots with the grassroots. Jimmy at the Crossroads brings you thought-provoking commentary, hard-hitting interviews, original satire, and the best bumper music known to man. Jimmy at the Crossroads! Gonna talk money, gonna talk politics. We're for all generations. Oh, what a great mix, I said. Gonna talk money, gonna talk politics. Grateful all generations. Oh, what a great mix. I got Jimmy and the Crossroads making sense out of nonsense. People want answers. They want to understand. They come to the crossroads and Jimmy gives them the plan. I said, gonna talk money, gonna talk politics. Pray for all generations. Oh, what a great mix. I got Jimmy at the crossroads making sense out of nonsense. Come on, Jimmy, what you got? Hello, my friends, and welcome to another edition of Jimmy at the Crossroads. I'm Jimmy Sangenberger, your host for the program, doing our level best to make sense out of nonsense as we bring you engaging, intelligent talk, Sang style. Thanks so much for joining us today on this Friday, April 24th. And this is a very special show here on Jimmy at the Crossroads. I say that because it is our very first Free to Choose Friday. For every upcoming Friday, we will be doing Free to Choose specials. You see, as human beings, we ought to be free to think, free to act, and free to choose. Those are fundamental to being a human being. We talked about individual rights last week. We are endowed by our creator with inalienable rights, that is natural rights to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness and property. And in order to actually carry out those natural rights because we are thinking human beings who have the capacity to reason, we ought to be able to think what we wanna think and then act and choose to be free to act and free to choose how we want to act and to choose. The only limit, really, is on whether or not my rights impinge upon your rights. Today, we've got a very special Free to Choose Friday, not just because it's our first, but also because it is Earth Week. The environment is truly special. It really is. I mean, I'm here in beautiful Colorado, where we've got those Rocky Mountains, and the Rocky Mountains are truly gorgeous truly epic. There's a reason why we hear in that classic Americana tune about the Rocky Mountains. 
If you live in a state like Colorado, you cannot help but love the environment and what God has created. But the question really comes down to how do, how do we protect the environment? How ought we to be good stewards of the environment? And that's what we're going to be talk, talking about today with Danielle Butcher of the American Conservation Coalition, Nick Loris of the Heritage Foundation, and the EPA Administrator, that is the Environmental Protection Agency Administrator, Andrew Wheeler. We got a great lineup, looking forward to it. Now, you might be wondering, what is it about free to choose? I said free to think, free to act, and free to choose. Why free to choose Fridays? Not free to act Fridays or free to think Fridays or something else. I want to address that before I spend a few minutes talking about the environment and sort of set the stage for our program today. Well, there is this great late economist, Milton Friedman. He was, I contend, the greatest economist of the 20th century. He was certainly influential in helping to shape my free market views. He passed away, I believe, in 2006. He's a Nobel Prize winning economist and was always one of the most articulate people when it came to explaining why individual liberty, limited government, and the free market were fundamental to a free society and also to achieving prosperity. Milton Friedman was the man. And he had a show called Free to Choose, which was based off of his book, Free to Choose, which is a classic treatise on individual liberty and free markets. It's one of the go-to influential pieces, writings, for people who are free market advocates, who really believe in, because they see the evidence, and they see why it works, and they see why it's so valuable to focus on individual liberty. So I, I thought I'd start off by paying a little tribute and playing a clip here and cut one. This is how Milton Friedman, at one point, I think it was 1979 or the 70s version, might have been early 80s, but at one point this was the opening to the show that he did, public access program called Free to Choose. Milton Friedman, free to choose. By the way, heck of a lot of videos available on YouTube. They are fantastic. The discussions that he would get into, debates sometimes, explorations of the issues, really great information that you can access on demand right on YouTube. So Milton Friedman, clearly he, he was the man. We'll talk a little bit about him today and over the course of the coming weeks. We won't always be discussing economic issues when it comes to free to choose Fridays. There are other topics and issues that we will talk about. Free to choose and being free to choose is about so much more than just economics. That's why today's show is about the environment. Specifically, there is a myth, and make no mistake, it is a myth. There is a myth out there that the free market, that the capitalist system, the private sector, doesn't care about the environment, will not protect the environment will not take any steps to do so because they're all about profit. 
The capitalist system is about profit first and everything else is secondary, if even secondary. But here's the thing, and we'll be talking about this quite a bit today on Jimmy at the Crossroads. The reality is very different. The reality is that government policies on the environment actually do far more harm than good. Moreover, it is the free market, the private sector, individual companies in pursuit of their profit motive that are taking the initiative on issues like climate change and other environmental protections, particularly because we the people have rightly been standing up and demanding more environmentally conscious products and services and business practices. Millennials in Generation Z entering into the workforce have been demanding that their employers treat the environment with greater care. That's the power of the market. When we get to vote with our dollars or vote with our time, and that is why we need to be looking towards innovation from unleashing the unlimited potential of the individual and the private sector to address challenges of the day. That's what the true path to environmental stewardship and conservation really is all about. To just put in perspective the negative impact that government policies can actually have on the environment, I want to play cut three here. This is Milton Friedman on the Phil Donahue show in 1979 talking about automobile regulations and why they're not actually so good. The thing that amazes me about people who make statements like this is their neglect of history. We, this country, went for close to 200 years without a Ralph Nader and without these regulations. And that was a period in which this country had its greatest growth, in which people streamed to it from all over the world and were able to make a better life for themselves and their children. If you take the automobile industry in particular, since Henry Ford really revolutionized it, it transformed the nature of life in this country. The automobiles improved tremendously. They came down in cost relative to other goods. The effect of the, of the kind of regulations you now have have has been to make automobiles not more safe but less safe. Why? Because by making them more expensive, they make it pay to keep an old car on the road longer. The average age of cars on the road has gone up. And old cars are less safe than uh, new cars. You know, a lot has changed in, what, 40 years since Milton Friedman made those comments. But not this. In fact, this situation has not improved in any way, shape, or form. Because you do have incentives for people to use older cars longer because the cost of buying a new vehicle is more expensive due to the regulations and so forth. We already have seen dramatic improvements in fuel economy because the consumers have been demanding it more than anything else. That's why it's been so great that the Trump administration has reevaluated the policies of the Obama administration and been shifting them differently in a different direction as far as loosening the boot over private companies so that they can be encouraged to make smarter decisions in the best way possible, the most affordable way possible. We'll delve into that with EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler later today on the show. But when it comes to government regulations, that's what you get, is incentives are warped. 
in order to meet the minimum standards of the government, you may see costs go up and or you may shut other things aside like innovation because, oh, once I meet the government standards, I'm good to go. I don't really need to go above and beyond that. There are a lot of different flaws to the government knows best mindset of environmental regulation. So today here on Jimmy at the Crossroads, we will delve into this again with Danielle Butcher, who is Chief Operating Officer and Executive Vice President at the American Conservation Coalition, a group of millennials and Gen Zers that are advocating for responsible stewardship of the environment and conservation policies that are sensible. They've got some good insights we'll talk them about. We'll also talk with Nick Loris, who's a fellow at the Heritage Foundation, about Green New Deal and other big government approaches and where they go wrong before we bring on to the show EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler. Again, this is our very first Free to Choose Friday here on Jimmy at the Crossroads. If you have not subscribed yet on the YouTube channel, please do. YouTube.com slash Jimmy at the Crossroads. You don't want to miss a minute. You can also like us on Facebook, Jimmy Sangenberger Media Personality. Follow me on Twitter. You can see it on the lower third, at Sang Center. Remember, saying with an E, not an A, center on Twitter. And also, our show comes to you in partnership with The Washington Examiner. Be sure to like them on Facebook, follow them on Twitter, and also subscribe to the YouTube channel, Washington Examiner, where you can find some exclusive videos from Jimmy at the Crossroads posted after select live shows. Be sure to check them out as well. We are going to take our first video break, but I am very much looking forward to kicking off our extensive lineup of just really good insights here on Jimmy at the Crossroads with Danielle Butcher of the American Conservation Coalition. When we return, stay tuned. And now, ladies and gentlemen, back to your host of Jimmy at the Crossroads, Mr. Jimmy Segenberger. Welcome back to Jimmy at the Crossroads on our first Free to Choose Friday. Coming to you in partnership with the Washington Examiner. Great to be with you today as we focus in on environmental issues and, as always, bring you engaging, intelligent talk, Sang style coming up later in the show. The administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, Andrew Wheeler, will be on to talk a little bit about what the Trump administration is doing as far as environmental policies. I think there's a lot of fog out there we need to cut through and get a better understanding of what's really happening in that regard. And also, we will be talking with Nick Loris, who is a fellow at the Heritage Foundation in Energy and Environmental Policy and get his thoughts on where the big government policies we're seeing proposed, Green New Deal, carbon tax, other areas of the sort, other ideas like those go wrong. But first, let's talk about why the environment really is something we should care about and why we should be looking towards innovative solutions, particularly birthed by the free market and innovation unleashing the unlimited potential of each and every individual with our first guest of the day. Danielle Butcher is the Chief Operating Officer and Executive Vice President of the American Conservation Coalition, and she joins us now here on Jimmy, Sangen Jimmy at the Crossroads with Jimmy Sangenberger today. Danielle, welcome to the show. Good to have you. 
Hey, Jimmy, thanks so much for having me on. It's great to be here during Earth Week and for your first Free to Choose episode. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's so great to have you here. So let me ask you a question. Why does the environment matter so much to you and Benji Backer, who founded American Conservation Coalition, and what is the coalition? Yeah, so to answer your first question, I think that the environment matters to everyone for very personal reasons. I, th I think that everyone has a story as to why they care about the environment and how the environment has kind of left an impact on them. I mean, I know you're in Colorado with the beautiful Rocky Mountains. How could you not care about nature when you have those in your backyard? I'm from northern Minnesota, so I have lakes and water everywhere. I grew up on the water and going to the beaches. And so it's important to me. And I grew up seeing in my backyard just how much of an impact we could have on our natural surroundings. So that's why I care about the environment. And my organization, the American Conservation Coalition, is people who care about the environment and solutions can come and utilize their conservative principles for those solutions. So we were founded in 2017 by a group of young people who cared about the environment and were tired of being told that conservatives didn't care about the environment. You know, it's so important to keep in mind just that basic point, the idea that conservatives do not care about the environment. I mean, you were talking about Minnesota. I'm talking about Colorado. If you are living in a state especially, I mean, look, the United States, we are blessed with so much natural beauty everywhere across the country, but especially in places like what we're talking about. Or I'm originally from upstate New York, and the Adirondack Mountains are absolutely gorgeous as well. You cannot help but think we need to protect our environment because we have to be able to enjoy it. We have to be able to have clean air day to day in our daily lives. And then also, we need to make sure that our kids and grandkids are well off to enjoy the environment too. Absolutely. I think it's really important. And listen, the natural beauty of this country is a part of our heritage. There's no question that we should protect it. Something else that I've noticed is that if you look at the development of economies across the globe, I mean, the United States and Western Europe, we're able to protect the environment and take initiatives to do so of our own accord because we're not scraping for food day in and day out generally. I mean, of course, we're going through a big economic crisis right now. But by and large, the average year in this country, people are doing very well. Even now, people do very well compared to other countries that are very impoverished. And therefore, they're just trying to figure out how they're going to put food on the table for the next day for their families, maybe making a dollar a day. They don't have sort of the luxury of protecting the environment. It's wonderful that here in the United States, we have that economic prosperity that makes it possible for us to really care about the environment and act accordingly, I would say. I completely agree. And I think that's something that the left oftentimes gets wrong about environmentalism is it is truly a privilege mm -hmm. to have so few problems that we can turn our attention to environmental problems. And we're not worried about putting food on the table and we're not worried sure our homes are warm in the winter or things like that. It is so important that we recognize the privilege we have in this conversation and recognize that we have that privilege because we've realized that economic success and environmental success have to go hand in hand. Now, when you're out and about with uh, young people, college campuses, people mid-late 20s, I'm in my late 20s, uh, or teenagers and talking, talking with younger people, millennials and Gen Z, and you express, okay, we care about the environment. We just think there's another way to go about it. How do you have those conversations and how do they go? 
You know, I think environmental issues and especially climate change are definitely a generational issue. And so when you're talking to a younger demographic, those conversations are definitely very easy to start out because you have some common ground. I don't know a single young person who would say they don't enjoy being out Side, hiking, fishing, whatever it is. Um, and so I think that you have to first establish that you have that common ground and then explain that you do care about the environment. You just have a different way of going about protecting it and explaining the theory behind that way and why you think it's better than the failed approaches we've used in the past. I found most people to be pretty open-minded to that. Yeah, I think the number one reason why in your experience, they are more open-minded to it, and in my experience as well, is because we're not just saying no to a Green New Deal, for example. You have alternative solutions that you put forward at the American Conservation Coalition. I've done the same through my work at the Millennial Policy Center and elsewhere. When you have those conversations about solutions, I think it comes down to you actually have ideas in the first place. So what are, what are the basic premise that you come across, uh, that you come at these issues on, Danielle Butcher, when it comes to the public policy space and what to do to actually protect the environment the right way? Absolutely tried to tackle these problems. Then regulation, it's been expanding government, it's been taking away property rights. And frankly, that's just not the right way to go about it. And we've seen that in the results that we've achieved. We have not had the environmental outcomes that we have desired. Climate change is still a huge issue. Uh, conservation is still a huge issue. Plastic pollution, right? the plastic straw bans is still a huge issue. And so I think at some point you just have to have a moment of self-reflection and realize, okay, this approach hasn't worked. It's time to try something new. And at the American Conservation Coalition, we believe that that something new is innovation. It's empowering inventors to create new technology that will reduce emissions and that will clean up our environment. It's competition. So it's allowing energy companies and energy sources to compete with one another so that you're uh, providing the cleanest energy possible, while also at the lowest cost to the consumer. And it's about personal responsibility, right? It's about recognizing that somebody who lives in Colorado and uh, has the Rocky Mountains in their backyard knows how to take care of that better than in Washington, D.C. I, I think that's very true. Well said. You, by the way, you're cutting in and out a little bit, so I think our signal's a, a little bit weak, but we, we got what you were saying for the most part there, Danielle Butcher, again, our guest from the American Conservation Coalition. So let's dive in a little bit more into some of these specifics. I mean, uh, you guys talk about the American Conservation Coalition's principles of limited government environmentalism. Talk to us a little bit about that, because I think principles are a critical starting point to any discussion about public policy, because you can't really get effective policy unless you understand what you're going for first. Mm -hmm, absolutely. I think that, first of all, any public policy decisions that are being made need to be made at the most local level possible. And I think that the conservative ideology in the GOP is uniquely positioned to do this because when you look at our voting demographic, we are the people who live in rural areas. We are the people who work in agriculture or the sportsmen or the people who go out and hike. And so they, those people who are connected to the land and live in the land, they know how to care for it better than anyone else. And so rather than allowing the federal government to make decisions on how to conserve that land and how to protect that land, put it back to the hand, actually have a in that. 
Danielle Butcher, again, our guest from the American Conservation Coalition. Uh, so when it comes to the argument that government doesn't work, I mean, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about this with Nick Loris from the Heritage Foundation in the next segment. But uh, overall, if you're, if you're saying, hey, these are the basic principles in terms of a limited government approach, and then you want to get to the policies, it's also important to at least lay the groundwork for why the way things have been done as far as looking to the government as the savior, if you will, and protector of the environment, the all-knowing, all-powerful steward, shall we say, uh, that, that saying why that is the failed approach and not the right approach. What's your overarching assessment of the government knows best attitude? And then we'll get into some of the specifics, especially on climate change, of how you think we should address these environmental concerns. Sure. The conservative doesn't believe there's no government at all in environmental protection. It just means that you believe in smart and efficient government protection or government um, involvement. And so there are a place for smart regulations. There is a place for some government, but I think that too often government goes overboard and when it isn't effective, that course is not corrected. And look, I think that as conservatives, it's like a tenant of our belief system that the market can solve problems much more efficiently and much faster and cheaper than government ever could. And so what we need to be doing is empowering the market to harness its power and address these challenges. So on climate change, I mean, this is clearly for millennials and Generation Z, it is a top concern, and not just of people who are on the left. There are young people on the right who are concerned about this. Now, they're not saying necessarily that the world's going to end in what, uh, I think it's 11 years now that we, we lost a year from the 12 that were originally projected till the end of the world, but it is an issue that I think the vast majority of people, especially, let's say, under 40, under 35, are genuinely concerned about for a variety of different reasons. I myself think that it is a legitimate issue to address, but to do it in a smart and strategic way. So two-part question for you, Danielle Butcher. First of all, what do you think the science says about climate change and the, the level of threat that it may pose? And then what's your overarching assessment, and we'll get into it a little bit deeper, of what should be done to address it if it is a concern? Absolutely. I believe the science is very clear that the climate is changing, and I believe that humans do have an impact on it. Now, that being said, I don't think it serves us to get caught up in this debate because the solutions that conservatives have to these challenges are good for the economy. So whether or not cli the climate is changing, which I believe it is, they'll good things to do for the environment in general. And I think you can see the effects of climate change firsthand if you live in a coastal community where it's flooding or if you live in... Um... Having a little bit of signal issues here with Danielle Butcher, our guest, again, uh, Chief Operating Officer and Executive Vice President at the American Conservation Coalition. Sorry, Danielle, you, you froze up there for a moment. So go back about 30 seconds, please. <laughs> no worries about that. As I was saying, I believe the climate is changing. I believe humans do have an impact on it. That being said, it doesn't serve us to get caught up in this argument about how severe the problem may be. What we need to be doing is looking at solutions that we can enact now that will be good for the economy and good for the environment. I think it's uh, that's a fundamental point that I make when I talk with older conservatives about how to win over young people and not just dismiss the issue of climate change. And in part, it's that, look, if you have less government regulation, that's a 
good thing for the economy, but also if you have the proper incentives in place just simply to protect the environment, then why not go for that? Why not try to unleash that innovation to address environmental concerns? So in terms of the climate change discussion then, what do you think needs to happen? I mean, we hear talk about uh, implementing more nuclear power and carbon capture technology. We hear discussions about enhancing property rights in certain ways. So what are some different avenues that you think we should be looking at at the American Conservation Coalition from a free market standpoint when it comes to climate change? Absolutely. So my organization, the American Conservation Coalition, actually just released our response to the Green New Deal. It is a conservative climate change identify four key areas that we believe we need to focus on in order to address climate change, and that is energy innovation, 21st century infrastructure, a global uh, a global approach, and natural solutions. So basically meaning those are the four areas we believe we can hone in on and make a difference to reduce emissions. And I, I want to touch really quickly on the global approach yes, section please. of that because I think it's very important for us to recognize the United States is a global leader. That being said, we only account for about 15% of global greenhouse gas emissions. So we could do everything right. We could have every regulation and reduce our emissions to net zero. And it would not matter if other countries were not willing to follow in our footsteps. And so that's why I think it's so important to lead with innovation, because you're not going to convince a developing country to implement our tax code or to implement our regulations that will stifle their economy. But what you can convince them to use is new technology that's going to create jobs and stimulate their economy. I think when we're thinking of how to address climate change, we need to think bigger than our own country. We need to figure out how we can act change globally. Although when oftentimes, Danielle, when we hear the term global approach put out, it's like, okay, that means we need to have a Paris Climate Accord. And how dare President Donald Trump remove the United States from the Paris Climate Agreement? How dare the Trump administration step back from a leadership role? What you're talking about doesn't sound to me like it's that. The United States signing on to global agreements from a top-down, government-knows-best sort of attitude but something a little bit different. Explain the distinction. Absolutely. I think the Paris Climate Accord, to be frank, is massively virtue signaling. Mm. You look at the emissions targets that they have set, and almost none of the countries that have signed on are on track to reach those targets. And I would say, what is the point in setting this goal if you have no idea how you are going to achieve that goal? So I think that at ACC, we lead with the solution and we say, okay, this is what we can do right now to get us to this goal in the future, rather than saying goal that we want to hit. I don't know how we're going to get there, but it'll happen magically. When it comes to the technology piece on the international stage, one thing that I have noticed is the development of fracking technology and improvements. I mean, clearly we have a situation going on with energy markets right now, but it's an anomaly due to the coronavirus crisis and related issues. As of the last couple of years, the United States has become a net exporter in oil and gas, which is pretty much unprecedented. I don't think it's been since like the 40s or 50s that we've had anything of the sort like this. And it's particularly because of the natural gas revolution with fracking. And one thing I look at is you have these uh, politicos and people on the left who say what we need to do is get 
developing nations to start building solar panels and windmills and so forth. And my thought on that has been, first of all, those are just not price, you know, you cannot price them at a level that a developing country can actually afford, first of all. Second of all, and this is a sign of improved economic growth and prosperity, actually, we're seeing electrical grids more and more popping up because of coal that uh, has been usable in these developing nations. And so more and more countries over the last 30 years have been use, using coal to power their economies. And that's been great for prosperity, for people's health and so forth. But the problem is, of course, that it's a dirtier source of fuel when we're talking coal. Natural gas, especially now how it's produced and used, is remarkably efficient, significantly less carbon intensive than coal is when you use it. And it's also something that can be transported to other countries. In my view, we should unleash more natural gas production and encourage exports to developing countries and help them build that infrastructure more so that we can implement lower carbon in, uh, emitting uh, natural gas in more parts of the world. It's absolutely true. The United States is a world leader in emissions reductions, and that's exclusively right. because of natural gas taking the place of coal as an energy source. And I think what's really interesting about the climate change conversation and how it relates to energy is that if you want to combat climate change, your number one goal should be reducing emissions. and when you get into this conversation with some people who may be left of center, they tend to only want to focus on wind and solar. And that's mm -hmm. fine. Wind and solar certainly have their place in our mm -hmm. energy grid. But there is no good reason to dismiss low emission energy sources such as natural gas or hydro or nuclear energy um, in this conversation because those are effective ways to reduce emissions. And it seems like there's some sort of purity test for which energy is acceptable for reducing emissions when the fact of the matter is we would not be able to reduce emissions at the rate that we have if it were not for these technologies and energy forms that the left doesn't want to use. That's so well put. It is an all of the above approach that we should be taking and allow, by the way, the market to work to implement the most efficient, lowest cost sources of energy. And maybe that's wind and solar at some point. Right now, it's certainly natural gas is playing a pivotal role there. Just a couple minutes left with you, Danielle Butcher from the American Conservation Coalition. I want to ask you about property rights. I love that ACC emphasizes the role of property rights when it comes to the environment because it actually produces an incentive to to conserve resources and to make sure that we are good stewards of the environment. Explain for just a moment the role of property rights, what they are, and why they're actually a critical thing that often gets lost in the conversation about the environment. Absolutely. I think the role of property rights in environmental protection can best be described by the tragedy of the commons, mm -hmm. which is to say when everyone is responsible for taking care of something, no one steps up to the plate because they just assume that someone else will do it. And when you have ownership of something, you have a vested interest in taking care of it and in making sure that it is as good as it can be. And that is why property rights are so, so important in environmental protection. And Danielle Butcher, before we let you go, and we could go at this for a while talking in, into the weeds more on some of these areas, and I appreciate the time, uh, please tell us where people can go so they can learn more about what the American Conservation Coalition is doing and also some of the ideas that you've put forward that are much more about how can we address environmental concerns without an overburdening government. Absolutely. If you want to find us on Twitter, you can do so at ACC.
CDC score national, you can check out our newly released climate change platform from a conservative perspective at climatesolution.eco. That's all, you cut out one point, so I do want to say acc.eco. Where are you on social media as well? ACC underscore national on Instagram and Twitter. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Danielle Butcher from the American Conservation Coalition, COO and EVP there. Really appreciate what you're doing and appreciate your time today on our inaugural Free to Choose Friday here on Jimmy at the Crossroads. Thanks, Jimmy. Appreciate it. Thank you. Again, Danielle Butcher, they're doing really great work at the American Conservation Coalition. I love the approach. See, folks, it's about proposition, not just opposition. In the next segment, we're going to talk about opposition more in depth, how government knows best approaches fail, why we should not be turning to them. But I wanted to talk a little bit more about some general thoughts on the idea of how we can, through proposition, through ideas, actually achieve what we all want, which is a better environment, a more well-protected environment with conservation as a primary focus. We're going to take a break here on Jimmy at the Crossroads. When we return, Nick Loris, fellow at the Heritage Foundation, will join us to dive into why the Green New Deal and other areas or ideas like that are bad for the environment, not good, and bad policies for the economy as well. And then the Environmental Protection Agency Administrator, Andrew Wheeler, will join us. You're watching Jimmy at the Crossroads. I'm Jimmy Sangenberger in partnership with The Washington Examiner. All right, folks, let's get you back to Mr. Sang Style himself, Jimmy Sagenberger. Coming back on our first Free to Choose Friday on Jimmy at the Crossroads, bringing engaging, intelligent talk, Sang Style, in partnership with the Washington Examiner. I am Jimmy Sangenberger, and it's so great to be with you. Great conversation with Danielle Butcher of the American Conservation Coalition coming up in the next segment as we focus in on the free market and the environment and how we can achieve environmental protection through the free market. We will talk with the administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, Andrew Wheeler. Very much looking forward to talking with Administrator Wheeler about a variety of different topics, including some of the misnomers about the Trump administration's approach on the environment. So great to be with you today. Happy Friday. It is Friday the 24th of April. And it's Earth Week, so of course we want to talk a little bit about the environment. Now, it was striking last year, last February, over a year ago, the Green New Deal was unveiled in a ceremony by Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York City and also Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts. And in cut six, here's a little taste of their grand unveiling of this so-called Green New Deal. Today is the day that we truly embark on a comprehensive agenda of economic, social, and racial justice in the United States of America. That's what this agenda is all about. Because climate change, climate change and our environmental challenges are one of the biggest existential threats to our way of life. Not, at, not just as a nation, but as a world. And in order for us to combat that threat, we must be as ambitious 
and innovative in our solution as possible. I say today that it is time for us to be bold once again. We have the technology to do it. We have the moral obligation. We have the economic imperative. We just need the political will to get this done. The sun is setting on the dirty energy of the past. Today marks the dawn of a new era of climate action. Bold, ambitious, innovative, all coming from what has been proposed as the most sweeping government power grab that we could see if it were to come into effect. Let's talk a little bit about the Green New Deal, about carbon taxes, other big government approaches to environmental issues with our next guest today here on Jimmy at the Crossroads. Nicholas Loris is Deputy Director of the Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Environmental Policy Studies and the Herbert and Joyce Morgan Fellow in Energy and Environmental Policy at the Heritage Foundation. Nick joins us now, sir. Happy Friday. Happy Free to Choose Friday and welcome to the show. Happy Friday. Good to be with you. Good to have you here on the show. So let me jump right to this question first, because you're an energy and environment fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Energy, I can understand. Why do you care about the environment, Nick? You're, a, you're from a conservative think tank. You're not supposed to care about the environment. <laughs> yeah, I think part of it is when I grew up, you know, I spent a lot of time outdoors, spent a lot of time camping with my family, uh, grew to appreciate it. Uh, and I think it's inherent in conservative free market principles that you should care for the environment. Uh, you know, there's this old uh, economist adage uh, that nobody washes a rental car, right? Uh, because you don't take care of what you don't own. And private property rights uh, is an inherently conservative principle and not just in the United States, but around the world has led to uh, tremendous environmental progress. And so these policies of, of free markets, of allowing innovation to flourish and, and human uh, prosperity, uh, to increase around the world, uh, not only uh, allows people to rise up out of poverty and gives people the resources that they need, but it also gives people the wealth and the resources they need to take care of the environment. I think we yes. can all agree that we want clean air uh, and drinkable water. It, it's more of how do you get there? What are the, the best means to the end? And a lot of times when it comes to the other side's proposals, uh, it's not necessarily about the outcome, it's how you get there. And a lot of times it does a lot more harm than good. Nick Loris, I want to play one more clip from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez last spring because the view that she expresses, which is pretty much conventional wisdom among many, particularly on the left, is that environmental challenges are actually a problem of market failure. Cut four is the clip we're talking about. Let's take a listen. This is from the MSNBC town hall she did last year with Chris Hayes about the Green New Deal. You know, if you want to bring up these labels and this, that, and the other and have that whole conversation, that's a whole other thing. But the one thing that we cannot rebuke and the one thing that we cannot deny is that climate change is a problem of market failure and externalities in our econ economics. And the initial response was, let the market handle it, they will do it. Forty years and free market solutions have not changed our position. Yeah. So... This does not mean, this does not mean
This does not mean that we change our entire structure of government. But what it means is that we need to do something, right. something. Yeah. And that is what this solution is about. Going to your point about it's not the outcome, it's just what you do that matters. Something, do something. But she says that this is a problem of market failure, specifically talking about climate change, but also saying for 40 years we've been doing free market solutions and those haven't worked. What do you make of that? Because I don't quite know over the last 40 years when we've grown government's role overall more and more until now under President Trump um, that those big government policies have worked, but I don't know too much about the free market solutions that she's talking about, except the ones that government isn't getting in the way of. Yeah, there's a tremendously strong correlation between economic freedom and environmental well-being. Uh, we at the Heritage Foundation have our index of economic freedom. If you pair that up with Yale's environmental performance index, you see that the freer, more prosperous countries are the ones that have better environmental outcomes. And part of it, again, is uh, a good solid role of uh, institutions, of rule of law, of protecting private property rights, but also having those means to care for the environment. Yes, uh, there is economic output that is going to produce pollution, and that is an externality that deserves our attention. And there's a, a few things there. One, you know, in some instances of regulation, a, a cap and trade system for a certain type of pollutant like acid rain. Uh, has yielded environmental benefits at, at lower costs. Um, so there are roles for regulation. Uh, right. It depends on whether you're talking about a federal regulation or a state regulation, but there's also what's known as diminishing marginal returns, is that with the major environmental statutes that we have in the United States, the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, uh, you see increasingly stringent environmental standards for diminishing marginal returns when it comes to the environmental benefits that we get because we have clean air and we have clean water in the United States. And that's what this administration and your next guest, Administrator Wheeler, are really trying to take a look at is, uh, are we getting uh, a lot of environmental benefit for these increased relations that are driving up costs on families and businesses? Uh, and a lot of times the answer is no. And with something as complex as climate change, where, yes, human activity is playing a role, although there's arguments as to uh, are there a lot of social benefits to increase CO2 emissions in terms of the greening of the earth, at least for the next few decades, a lot of climate models ha have shown that, uh, but also all of the natural variations that come with climate change. So trying to pinpoint some sort of social cost uh, on human activity's role on climate change is an extremely difficult task. Yeah. Uh, more importantly, the policy solutions proposed by the Green New Deal and others would be very, very costly. It wouldn't do anything to mitigate global temperatures or avert sea level rise. Nick Loris, our guest from the Heritage Foundation, one thing that you hit on about uh, diminishing returns over time, if we go back to the time in you know the 60s, 70s, when a lot of these acts were passed, Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, for example, we had a very low base. There was a lot of pollution that was going on. Acid rain was a critical issue, other challenges, where government was somewhat effective during that period of time. But now, because we really have made so many strides over the past 40 years or so, the value of government regulation is significantly less, I would say, than it is compared to the harm of government regulation and red tape. 
That's exactly right, especially at the federal level and a lot of times at the state level, too. But, uh, you know, one of the benefits of living in the United States is uh, this notion of federalism and allowing states to pursue environmental objectives as well. And, and one of the principles that we hold dear at the Heritage Foundation is that those people closest to the problem uh, should be the ones solving it. And so you don't have Washington regulating a small stream in Nebraska. That doesn't mean that Nebraska should allow polluters to pollute that stream, but maybe uh, their own Department of Environmental Quality can handle the regulation without transforming how every type of business acts around every stream of water around the United States. And so this is a, a critical function of the government to internalize externalities, uh, although not every time the, the bureaucrats who are enacting these regulations are uh, so benevolent that they're just focused on the regulation, that there's flaws with the regulatory process itself. Uh, but we do need to think about who should be doing the regulating, what are the costs and what are the benefits? And too often, those costs uh, outweigh the negligible environmental benefits we're getting uh, for those new regulations that we're enacting at the federal level. And to uh, the Congresswoman's point about economic justice, these regulations are harming uh, our most vulnerable societies because they're driving up energy costs and it's the low income families who spend a disproportionately higher percentage of their budgets on energy costs. So it's really a matter of what we're doing to these communities, not what we're doing for them. I think that's a critical point that you hit on right there, Nick Loris, because if you raise the cost of heating your home for people, you hurt those who are most economically disadvantaged rather than helping them as you th might think that you're helping them uh, with. But wh one of the things that has been so striking to me in this discussion about the environment and environmental policy, especially under the Trump administration, has been the actions of the Trump EPA, um, Environmental Protection Agency, and again we'll talk with Administrator Wheeler in the next segment to, uh, more about this, but the Trump administration has been maligned for undoing a lot of things that the Obama administration had put into place. The Paris Climate Accord, the Clean Power Plan, for example, although, by the way, the Clean Power Plan never actually took into effect. It got bogged down in legal battles, and the Trump administration basically said, we're not going to defend this in court anymore. Instead, we're going to put forward our own affordable clean energy rule as an alternative and so forth. But give us, if you would, please, a primer on what the Trump administration has been doing at the EPA and elsewhere to undo what the Obama administration was doing and why you might see that there's actually value in their approach as opposed to the top-down government-knows-best strategy that Obama was taking. Yeah, I think too often this administration gets unfair criticism for gutting regulations when most of the time, if not all of the time, they're right-sizing regulations. And in my opinion, they probably haven't gone far enough. Uh, the latest example was the uh, fuel economy standards, which are a, a relic of the 1970s when we thought we were running out of oil. And now the Environmental Protection Agency, along with the Department of Transportation, have to mandate uh, fuel economy standards for our vehicles. And, and this is uh, an issue where consumers already value fuel economy. It's one of the things that uh, families, anytime they're going to buy a car, they, they ask how many miles per gallon does it get? Uh, we don't need the federal government overriding the preferences of consumers uh, by mandating fuel economy over safety and size and vehicle weight 
and all of these other attributes that consumers de desire in a vehicle. Uh, and this is an interesting case study where the auto industry complained when the Obama administration had ratcheted up its miles per gallon standard to 54 and a half miles per gallon for model year 2025 cars. And the Trump administration proposed to freeze it and the automakers complained about that too. And so it, it seems like you can never win with industry. And what I appreciate about this administration is they're really trying to focus on how does this impact the consumer? How does this impact the American family? Uh, and also how does it impact the environment? And so they've taken both of those considerations uh, into account when promulgating these rules and regulations and really focused on right-sizing the regulations while also promoting increased access to scientific transparency and data to allow folks to really get under the hood of what is the underlying science that drives these regulations. And so we have better access to information to better understand the costs and benefits of the regulation. Yeah, and the cost-benefit analysis is so critical. My dad would call these the Ben Franklin analysis. And I think every politician and every policymaker and administrative bureaucrat should take a policy and make a list. What are the presumed benefits of this policy, and what are the likely costs of this policy? And at a minimum, if the costs outweigh the benefits, you shouldn't do it. If there's an alternative way to achieve those benefits, you should most certainly be looking towards it if it means less government involvement. I want to ask you, though, Nick Loris, again, our guest from the Heritage Foundation, about the Green New Deal. I mean, clearly, this isn't making any significant headway right now in Washington, D.C., but elements of it have been adopted by leading Democrats, including Joe Biden, numerous candidates across the country, people who would like to bring about a much more expansive role for government. Tell us overall how you view the Green New Deal, which is, I think, the epitome of the government's no, government knows best approach. Yeah, from an economic and an environmental standpoint, this policy is a loser. Uh, environmental policy should be good for people first. Uh, and if it's not good for people, it's not good for the environment. And this is a policy that's terrible for people because it will drive up energy costs. And because energy is such a critical component uh, for almost everything we make and everything we do, it's not just when you fill up your gas, it's not just when you pay your electricity bill, but when you go out to eat, when you go to Walmart, uh, these regulatory policies have adverse effects on the economy that really squeeze the production and consumption side of the economy to the tune of you know a couple trillion dollars lost in economic activity offer no meaningful climate benefit. And in fact, when you look at the costs and the benefits of policies like the Green New Deal, you really have to think about the unintended environmental consequences as well. Just because AOC wants to stop the production of coal, oil, and natural gas in the United States doesn't mean that it's going to stop the consumption of those resources worldwide. It's merely going to shift production overseas to um, areas uh, that have less stringent environmental standards and less stringent public health and safety standards. Uh, so there's a lot of environmental costs uh, with mandating 100% renewable power as well, not just the, the overseas uh, and overshoring of a lot of our activities, but also just the land use changes that would be required. The fact that they negate uh, nuclear power as a viable clean energy right. source, even though it's the largest base source of emissions-free energy that we have out there. So it's so prescriptive in determining who produces what uh, that would lead to a lot of cronyism, 
uh, and a lot of higher costs for American families for no meaningful climate benefit. Now, I'm so glad you talked about unintended consequences. Uh, one of my, he's not that well known, but I really admire the economist philosopher from the from France in the mid-1800s, Frederick Bastiat, who wrote a treatise entitled That Which Is Seen, That Which Is Not Seen. And you can see certain benefits to things that the government might do. But what about the consequences, those who are adversely affected? For example, he talks about the broken window fallacy. Say that you run a shop and some vandal comes and breaks through your window and you have to replace it. Okay, so now the guy who's going to replace the glass window gets paid. The glass maker gets paid. All those people down the chain will get some benefits from it. But what were you going to do as the business owner in your shop with that money? You might have been just about to hire a new person. Now you have to delay it. Same thing, maybe you might have wanted to get a, get a computer or some other piece of technology, a new software program, and now you have to delay that. So while you can see certain benefits to other people, there are unseen costs, and the same thing works on a macroeconomic scale, Nick. Yeah, absolutely. And Bastiat's one of the reasons I got into classical liberal oh, uh, economic it. thought. And um, got to read the law so, too. The law is great, um, yeah. and um, you know Hayek has also a very good quote pertinent to this conversation when he said that the curious task of economics is to demonstrate to man how little they know about what they imagine they can design. Yes. And that's really the underlying philosophy of the Green New Deal is they tried to design these energy markets completely funded by the taxpayer and controlled by the federal government and it results in all of, uh, very seen costs but also unseen costs too. And we've seen little snippets of this in energy policy already dating back uh, to the 70s but also in the 2005 and 2007 energy bills we have little snippets of Green New Deal-like policies where the government is involved in energy markets through loan guarantees and targeted tax credits. And we all know Solyndra, the $500 million loan guarantee uh, that went to a solar manufacturer in Solyndra that went belly up. Uh, but it wasn't just about the taxpayer money that was lost as part of the Solyndra project because uh, private investors dumped nearly a billion dollars into Solyndra. And much of that financing came after the Department of Energy anointed Solyndra as a qualifier for the DOE loan guarantee program. And so that's a billion dollars that couldn't be spent on other innovative technologies, whether in the energy space or, or elsewhere. And so when you have the government controlling uh, labor and capital flows, you are directing private financing to the to those projects as well. And all of the companies who aren't part of that those projects uh, really miss out. And so it really creates more cronyism, creates more of politicians and lobbyists determining how the resources are allocated. And we really stunt innovation by shielding out competition sure. and innovation, not promoting it. The, the last thing I want to get to, this was stunning just a couple days ago. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez put out a tweet because we've been seeing just this oil price crash around the globe in, in recent days. And that's really been putting a squeeze on the private sector oil companies here in the United States. And it seems that more than anything, that might be their goal. Let's put up this tweet from the 20th. Uh, a guy named Brandon Smith put out a tweet saying, oil prices are now at negative values, meaning oil producers have to pay people to, to take it off their hands and store it because when demand plunges like now, that is less expensive for them 
than building more storage and or shutting wells down. And then Ocasio-Cortez tweets out, and by the way, deleted this tweet shortly thereafter. You absolutely love to see it. This, along with record low interest rates, means it's the right time for a worker-led mass investment in green infrastructure to save our planet. Cough. Nick Loris, I've got about 30, 45 seconds here for you, but a quick response. What does that tell you about what they're really going for here with this agenda? Yeah, I'd hate to have energy companies and the hardworking American families read that tweet and think this is okay. Uh, not to mention that oil isn't going anywhere. Uh, so we have a lot of cheap, abundant fuels that's going to make it harder for alternative energy sources to compete. Uh, but rather than demonizing one energy source over another, how about we promote a free market energy policy that allows both renewables and nuclear and conventional fuels to flourish. Uh, we shouldn't be demonizing affordable, reliable energy that has been so critical in this pandemic, uh, powering hospitals, getting uh, food to grocery stores, um, right. enabling people to telework. Affordable, reliable power makes the world go round. Uh, it, it's nonsensical to demonize oil and other conventional fuels like that. Nick Loris, fellow at the Heritage Foundation, joining us here on Jimmy at the Crossroads on our inaugural Free to Choose Friday. Thanks so much for joining us. I always appreciate, too, when a guest comes on and knows who Frederick Bastiat is and also, like me, admires the late philosopher economist. So thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate your time today. Have a good weekend. Stay well and healthy. Same to you. Thanks again for having me. Thank you. Once again, Nick Loris from the Heritage Foundation joining us here on Jimmy at the Crossroads. We need to take a break. And when we come back, we will be joined by none other than the administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency. That is Andrew Wheeler. Now, this is going to be an interesting discussion because we're going to dive into the overall philosophy of the Trump administration and their approach to environmental policy. We'll talk a little bit about what the administration is doing as far as changing dynamics, changing things, changing policies, things they are scrapping, things they are adjusting, that sort of thing, uh, which I think is very important, especially since we're seeing a lot of this get lost in the shuffle of the discourse where the media is only giving a very limited scope view of what's being done in the Trump administration. So there we go. We will see what happens there. So it looks like we have a little bit of a technical issue here. And we're going to uh, take a quick break here on Jimmy at the Crossroads. We will be back in moments with the administrator of the EPA, Andrew Wheeler. Keep it right here. Ladies and gentlemen, on the harmonica, Jimmy Sagenberger.
Welcome back to Jimmy at the Crossroads, the show with probably the only host in the country that will actually welcome a senior member of the Trump administration by playing harmonica. I am Jimmy Sagenberger, joined now, and so pleased to be, by the administrator for the Environmental Protection Agency on our first Free to Choose Friday, focusing on the free market and environmental protection. Mr. Administrator Andrew Wheeler, welcome to the show. Good to have you here. That was the best introduction I have ever had on any show I have ever been on. That was incredible, a Monica plane. I well, love thank it. you. I, I thought you might. I really don't see, want to inter- I, I think your listeners would rather listen to you play more do, than do you hear want, me talk. All right, then I'll apply. <laughs> I, you know, here's what I like to do. We like to have fun here on this show and do things that are a little bit unorthodox. And I think the reason why, more than anything, not just because I like to do it, I enjoy playing the harmonica, but it's because things are so darn serious right now. And we need to cut loose and relax a little bit, I think. We do. We do. Things are serious. We need to take them seriously. But, you know, we need to also see the humor in everyday life. So, um, know, I think that's important, and yeah. you know, laughter is the best medicine. You know, there's there's a lot of stress out there, and and we need to calm people down some, and we need to just relax. It's interesting. I, I did a conference call yesterday with my Region Seven staff, and there's about 500 of them on the phone, and this is out of our Kansas City office, and they've been doing a weekly competition each week at the end of the staff meeting to um, this week that was the the most appropriate country music um song title to represent the coronavirus and the the title that won i i nominated crazy by patsy klein but um the the title that won was an old kitty wells song which i never heard of before it was something along the lines um only my hairdresser and i know the truth um which is <laughs> perfect that, for this I, time last week that it, really it, it was a movie title and it was Home Alone was the movie title that won last week in their in their competition. You have some we had a creative very serious people. meeting for thirty minutes, and we ended it with a nice, lighthearted. So I, I think that's effort. fantastic. At, at the end, I will then ask you a question related to what you were saying with country music and me playing harmonica and that sort of thing. And I'll, I'll hold that to the end, so we can also end on a similar note like that and sort of where where we began. But Administrator Wheeler, I really appreciate you coming on to talk with us today. I've interviewed a couple of times on the radio and always enjoy our conversations. And I want to dive right in. I mean, today is our inaugural feel to choose, rather free to choose Friday here on Jimmy at the Crossroads, somewhat in honor of Milton Friedman, but also because of the fact that we as human beings have the right to choose and should be able to. And part of that means being able to innovate and choose creatively how to address environmental problems. It's what we've been talking about the whole theme of today. And I'd love your overall view on how you approach environmental protection because I'm guessing it's not that you want to destroy the environment because I hear that a heck of a lot. I hear that about me, but it's certainly not yeah, true. Yeah, that's right. Thank exactly. You. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm, I'm actually an Eagle Scout. I still go hiking and camping. I love the outdoors. The last thing I want to do is do anything that will will um, harm the environment. And you know, the mission of, of my agency, the Environmental Protection Agency, is to protect public health and the environment. And so we have a, a dual mission here, and we're exercising that. But you, you're right, there's sensible ways of doing this. 
You know, perfect example is, you know, we just finalized our cafe standards for cars a couple of weeks ago. And it, what it did is replaced the second half of the Obama regulations. The Obama regulations were in two halves, and we just replaced the second half. The first half that they did in, back in 2012 projected by 2026 that half of the cars on the road would be electric vehicles. Right now it's less than 5%. And we're, there's no way we would ever meet the 50%. So their standards were based on that premise, and that was what they were driving to. And that's ignoring what Americans want to buy, the cars they want to purchase. And as a result, the average age of cars on the road today is now 12 years old. It used to be eight because people are holding on to their cars longer because the cars that are being produced aren't the cars that people want to buy or they're too expensive. So we did our regulation. We lowered, It's going to help lower the price of new cars. And it's going to allow automobile manufacturers to continue to produce cars that meet environmental standards that people want to purchase. It's, to me, it's very common sense. Yeah, I, I think it really is uh, true in that in that way where if you enable people to purchase what they want to purchase and understand also that fuel economy standards is something that if you're going to buy a new car, you absolutely are looking for a vehicle that's going to be good on fuel economy. But since you mentioned the point sure. about how expensive it can be for a new car compared with an old vehicle, particularly because of these regulations, I just I have no choice. We played this in the beginning of the show. I want to get your reaction. This is 1970. Milton Friedman on Phil Donahue's show making that exact point. I think there's just such resonance. The thing that amazes me about people who make statements like this is their neglect of history. We, this country, went for close to 200 years without a Ralph Nader and without these regulations. And that was a period in which this country had its greatest growth, in which people streamed to it from all over the world and were able to make a better life for themselves and their children. If you take the automobile industry in particular, since Henry Ford really revolutionized it, it transformed the nature of life in this country. The automobiles improved tremendously. They came down in cost relative to other goods. The effect of the, of the kind of regulations you now have have has been to make automobiles not more safe, but less safe. Why? Because by making them more expensive, they make it pay to keep an old car on the road longer. The average age of cars on the road has gone up. And old cars are less safe than uh, new cars. Administrator Wheeler, it seems that the more things wow. change, the more government stays the same. <laughs> I think if you Until just now. play the harmonica and Milton Freeman all day, we'd be much better off as a country. You know, there's a reason why Ken Starr calls me Jimmy the Harmonica Man, so I appreciate that. Uh, you know, glad, glad you're enjoying it. But the point is just so well made. So, Administrator it's, Wheeler, yeah, go oh, ahead, it's, please. It's absolutely, and we're making the same point this year about cars and the difference between our regulations and the Obama regulations. And I, I loved he, he brought up um, Ralph Nader. Probably a lot of your listeners, although Ralph Nader's still around, he's not as active as he used to be. Um, you know, he came to fame back in the late 60s um, where he went after the Corvair, which, and he called it unsafe at any speed. Um, the first car I drove when I turned 16 in the mid-80s mid was um, a Corvair. It was a 20-year-old Corvair, but I loved it. And, you know, the, the way to make it safe was to put some weights in the, because the engine was in the back. If you just put some weights in the front of the car, you had no problem with it. And it was a, it was a cheap, well-made car, got great fuel economy. And because of his book, Unsafe at Any Speed, um, General Motors quit making it. 
So fuel economy standards are one area in which the Trump administration has been scaling back some of the, I would say, overburdensome regulations that we've seen in recent years. There are other efforts as well. Bring us up to speed on some of the other initiatives that the Environmental Protection Agency has been working on, say, over the last several months to a year. Sure. Well, in January, we finalized our WOTUS regulations. For, this is for Waters of the U.S. Um, this was, um, again, to replace an, a, an Obama regulation that just did not work. And what we set out to do on the WOTUS regulation was to define for the, your average um, landowner so that they know whether or not their property falls under the federal jurisdiction. You know, in the past, people had to spend a lot of money going to hire lawyers to try to figure out whether or not they met the federal definition. We try to have a very clear-cut, easy-to-understand definition so that your average farmer, homeowner can tell whether or not their property falls under that. Um, we, we also, um, for the first time ever, differentiate it between state waters and federal waterways. You know, if the federal government were to stop regulating water tomorrow, and we aren't, and we, we, we didn't and we're not going to, most of the waterways would already be protected by state laws. And then third, we also wanted to follow, and this may sound surprising to some people, um, certainly is surprising to people inside the Beltway, Washington, D.C. Beltway. We wanted an, a regulation that will be upheld by the courts and stand the test of time because the water regulations have been flip-flopping back and forth between the Supreme Court and the other courts for about 20 years now. And we need certainty. The American public needs certainty. I really fundamentally believe that if people know what the rules are and they understand the rules, they will comply with them. We don't need to force a lot of um, bureaucratic red tape on your average citizen that, that requires them to, to hire attorneys and, and, and possibly violate the law unintentionally. We need to have better understood regulations. One other thing that the Trump administration has done is not defend the clean power plan in court and instead institute the affordable clean energy rule. And I, I want to be very clear that I said not defend it in court and instead institute an alternative because it isn't that you scrapped the clean power plan that the Obama administration had put into place because, as you and I have talked about before, it never went into effect. Can you tell us a little bit about, exactly. especially because climate change is a big issue of concern to, to young Americans, about the clean power plan, why it was such a bad deal economically, but also the history legally with that, and then also what this ACE rule does? Sure. So what the, what the Obama administration did on their clean power plan is they went what's called outside of the fence line. The EPA, through the Clean Air Act, has regulated power plants for years. But when we regulate a power plant, we regulate what's actually happening inside the power plant. And what the Obama administration did with their clean power plan was direct, basically, the power plants to uh, make decisions for everyone outside of the confines of their fence line. And it, it made no sense. And it was... Um, it was litigated. Actually, it didn't even get through the, the regular briefings. It went up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court issued a stay and said this rule is not into effect until it can be fully litigated because we believe. And they only issue a stay when they believe that, um, that, the, that the regulation will fall, that it, that it won't be held, up, held constitutional. So you know, the Supreme Court stepped in, and the Clean Power Plan never took effect. So we came in, the Trump administration, we looked at it and we said, we can't defend that. The Supreme Court has already said they issued the stay. It's outside the bounds of the Clean Air Act. It doesn't even follow the, the, you know, the 30, 40-year history of the Clean Air Act. So we took a look at, at the requirement, which is to reduce 
um, CO2 emissions from power plants, and we put forward a regulation which will require power plants to reduce their emissions power plant by power plant. We set up different um, um, different standards based upon the type of fuel and the type of power plant it is, but all power plants will have to reduce their CO2 emissions. We are actively addressing climate change. I know a lot of young people are concerned about climate change, and we're doing something about climate change. Our, power, our ACE rule, which we finalized last summer, will reduce CO2 emissions from the power plant sector, and our CAFE standards that we just finalized a few weeks ago that I talked about a minute ago will reduce CO2 emissions 1.5% per year mm-hmm. from now until 2026. So we are addressing climate change, but we're doing it within the confines of the law, the laws that Congress passed. What the previous administration tried to do was to go outside the laws. Everything they worked on was tied to climate change, and they ignored a lot of other things that the agency was supposed to be doing. A great example is the Brownfields program. They were letting and, and Superfund sites. They were letting those go, particularly the Superfund sites. They weren't getting them cleaned up. Last year, we got 27 Superfund sites delisted from the priority list. We got them cleaned up more than any year since 2001. We're focused on getting these contaminated sites around the country cleaned up. And when you get a site cleaned up or you put money in the Brownfields program to clean up a site in an inner city, that injects more investment into those communities. And a lot of this is going to um, low-income minority communities where we're getting these old sites cleaned up once and for all so that the communities where they live can, can start new businesses more private sector investment goes into them. It's going to really help a lot right. of Americans everywhere they live. We're talking with the administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, Andrew Wheeler. Just a couple minutes left with the end. I got a, a couple of quick hit questions here. One, I sure. think that, that while the EPA is still fulfilling its mission to protect the environment, and that's the whole point, and so you do have a regulatory role, one of the themes that we've been hitting on, in fact, the most prominent theme of today's show here on Jimmy at the Crossroads has been the fact that the private sector has been leading innovation, and we should not have this government-knows-best attitude with the Green New Deal, a clean power plan, the Paris Climate Accord, and so forth. Some support from the government, encouragement, incentives in place, and what have you is all well and good, but you have to understand that a top-down micromanagement management approach is not going to do the trick to protect the environment or address climate change. Much better to do what you can to unleash the unlimited potential of private sector innovation. Absolutely. We're trying to take away a lot of the red tape that has been hampering these businesses, um, and we're trying to address that in everything we do. It's very costly, too. Can you just give us a sense for the cost of some of the regulations that you have been rolling back or or not uh, overburdening businesses with? Oh, we, we have, I believe, the, the, the savings so far is, um, I, I want to say, around um, $20 billion in regulatory right. savings. Uh, sounds right. Um, but by the end of this year, it should be over $100 billion. Wow. That, that is remarkable to think about. Let me ask you two final questions. One, President Trump, I mean, there are areas where he is very attentive to as president of the United States. We've seen certain policy issues where he's taken them on full bore as the president. How has he worked with and interacted with the EPA as far as giving guidance or direction? Uh, to what extent does he sort of say, hey, Andrew, go ahead and do what you think is needed to be done. Come to me if you need help versus, hey, I'm going to be very in tune on every little thing, because I like that the fact that he often delegates to different individuals like yourself who understand these certain areas. 
He does delegate, but I'll tell you, the day he called me to ask me to take over the agency, he told me to continue to clean up the air, continue to clean up the water, and continue to deregulate in order to help create jobs. He knows we can do all three. I know we can do all three, and you know we can do all three at the same time. Um, but I'll tell you, every time I've gone in to brief him on our issues, and I've, I've done it um, multiple times, he is always well briefed before I get in the room, before I enter the Oval Office. He knows the issue. He asks he asks me the pertinent questions. He gets to the heart of the issue, and it's it's really amazing. But you know, a lot of it comes from having been a um, having been a businessman and having to to um, you know fall under a number of regulations from a number of different agencies and departments. He gets that intuitively, and he and he just he asks the exact right questions, mm-hmm. and he and he gives me the you know the best advice. Finally. Since we were starting off with music, what is your favorite kind of music? I can't not ask that question. I'm a, a have a strong passion for music. So, what do you enjoy? I don't. I don't know that I have a particular type. I go through phases. You know, I, mm-hmm. I went through a phase of listening to a lot of this, um, like just over the last year or two, the the '70s rock. The, the, mm. Oh, the, I love that. The Pink Floyd and the and the Led Zeppelin. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love country. I love. I, I really like the Ken Burns um, country. Um, documentary he did last mm-hmm. fall. I really enjoy that. Did you get a chance to watch that? I have not. I have not, but it's good. I highly recommend it. I just I learned so much more about country music and how country music influenced rock music. And um, I, I didn't realize what a visionary Mother Maybell Carter was. And she had, I, I guess it was called the, the, the Carter slide on the guitar that has been mimicked by rock and roll guitar players ever since. Oh, wow. Uh, it's, it's amazing. That, I, I love looking at the roots of music and how yes. they all interact. Um, but I, I'm not a big pop fan, um, but I, I really do like some just hardcore sure. um, rock and roll music. Well, I will, I will just say that, yes, country certainly had an influence on rock, but the blues had a baby, and they called it rock and roll, as the great late Muddy Waters oh, would say. Sure. And Mr. Administrator Andrew Wheeler, Absolutely. let me let me give you a proper outro since you enjoyed the intro. Andrew Wheeler, Administrator for the Environmental Protection Agency, thanks so much for coming on today. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. I'm happy to come on anytime. Thank you. Sounds good. Thank you. Again, EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler joining us here on Free to Choose Friday. Look, it's Friday. I was seeing hashtag feel good Friday trending. For two and a half years, I hosted a show in Denver called Business for Breakfast. It was a weekday morning show. And every Friday we had the best bumper music known to man as we would enjoy a feel good Friday. I'm feeling good on a Friday. Why not lighten the mood just a little bit? We all need it. That's for darn sure. But what a day. What a show. I really appreciate Danielle Butcher from the American Conservation Coalition joining us today. Also appreciate Nick Loris from the Heritage Foundation coming on to offer perspective and insights. And of course, EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler. I always enjoy having a good conversation with people who are doing day in and day out the work of the people. And I know that Wheeler as other administration officials in the Trump administration are, is a controversial figure to some. There are people who disagree with the policies that go into effect. But I think this is what's so uplifting to me about the environmental policies of the Trump administration. Well, I would go smaller government than they are, at least when we could hear it in our conversation with Administrator Wheeler. They understand that you need to get the government boot off of the private sector's neck. 
Because it's not that the government knows best and is able to bring about the most positive things for the environment, although they can help things along, as the administration was saying. But it is the case that government all too often, far more often than not, gets in the way, raising costs for consumers, making it more difficult for people to buy products that may improve the environment, making it more costly for uh, some of the production elements to go into effect and what have you. Again, it doesn't mean there's no role for government in the environmental protection space, but it does mean that there is much more of a burdensome role that government plays than anything else. We really do need to unleash, as I said before, the unlimited potential of private sector innovation. Because that's where we're getting this. As Danielle Butcher pointed out before, the United States has led the world in reducing carbon dioxide emissions. That's remarkable. 2017, for example. In 2017, the Trump administration announced, President Trump announced he was withdrawing from the Paris Climate Accord. In that same year, the United States reduced carbon emissions by about the same amount as the European Union increased theirs. The same year that Trump said, hey, we're getting out of the Paris Climate Accord. Looking at Europe and saying they're not doing their part and the United States would be bearing the cost of the Paris Climate Accord. Make no mistake, the big government policies that we saw under the Obama administration, the global approach of government knows best, as opposed to let's unleash private sector innovation, it's tried and failed over and over again has been tried and failed. We twice today played that clip of Milton Friedman, the great late economist Milton Friedman, to whom we are in some respects playing, paying tribute on our Free to Choose Fridays. Milton Friedman explained well in that clip before about how the costs of vehicles, new vehicles, which should be safer, should be more fuel efficient. They are. But the costs of those vehicles can go up, making it difficult for lower income Americans to afford them. And therefore, they keep older cars longer. And thus, they are driving cars that are not as safe as other cars, that are not as fuel efficient as other cars. That was 1979 that Milton Friedman said that. And now, what, 41 years later, look where we are. It, it's an attitude that has persisted, the idea that government knows best. There was a more of a role, perhaps, for government in the 60s, 70s, in certain areas in terms of some of the acid rain and, and some of the pollutants that were out there. But now, having a, a significant role for government is not only unnecessary, but it is far more harmful. The data doesn't support it. And... We just have to keep in mind that the private sector innovation, it's not just a catchphrase, it's reality. I'll tell you one final story before we go for today. Several months back, I was asked to meet with a couple of individuals from a major chemical manufacturing company. And I sat down with them, wanted to get their thoughts on what's going on, and then I, what they wanted to meet about. And then we had a conversation about some of their policies dealing with climate change. And what they told me are two interesting things. One, employees, new employees, younger workers that they're hiring at this company are asking them, what are you doing about climate change? What are you doing about the environment? They're asking them about that. That's encouraging because it means that these workers are actually saying to their employers, hey, we're watching this. What are you doing? 
We want to make sure that you are protecting the environment. But also they said that their products now are significantly less carbon intensive because of new measures that they've put in place as far as production. However, while the products that are being put out to the public have less of a carbon footprint, when they're producing, manufacturing these products, they're now producing more of a carbon footprint during the production phase because the products are less carbon intensive. But here's the more interesting part. They said that on net, there is a noticeable reduction in the emissions that they have been putting out as a result of this. In other words, while on the front end, we have seen carbon emissions go up while they're constructing the products, while they're manufacturing the goods, when they go on to market, they reduce on net the emissions that are being given out by this company. But when we talk about a carbon tax, that would tax the production, even though this company is in the end producing products that have less of a carbon footprint, a carbon tax that many have put forward as a proposal, including some supposedly on the right, would significantly increase costs of manufacturing those goods, meaning that you lose some of the benefits when it becomes more difficult for consumers to purchase that company's products. Because when you put a carbon tax, a tax on the carbon that is emitted when they produce, manufacture these goods, that means that the cost of constructing the goods is higher, and then that cost gets passed on to consumers. So government knows best attitudes show that they don't actually know what's best. Private sector innovation is critical. So a couple of reference points to learn more about this issue. Heritage Foundation has some great work on this, especially on the harm of government policies. Also, the Cato Institute does. The American Conservation Coalition, acc.eco, great tool, especially for reaching young people to better understand the role of free markets in protecting the environment. And then also, Millennial Policy Center is a program that I have headed up. You saw several videos from MPC today, and we have a lot of research on there at millennialpolicycenter.org. So lots to check out, lots to keep in mind, and there are propositions here, not just oppositions to things like the Green New Deal and the carbon tax. There are free market ways to help stimulate improvements when it comes to the environment, conservation, all those stewardship things because we must protect our planet. Make no mistake about it. We must protect our planet, not just for our kids and grandkids and great-grandkids and generations not yet even conceived of, but for ourselves so we can enjoy the benefits and virtues of the environment. I'm here in Colorado, and make no mistake, I go out and I look at the mountains and I say, oh my gosh, God is great because we see it with our eyes. That is it for us today. Thanks so much for joining us for the inaugural Free to Choose Friday here on Jimmy at the Crossroads. Have a great weekend. We'll be back on Monday working on a great lineup. We've got Gordon Chang, noted China critic, returning to the show, but we're going to talk about North Korea. He's an expert there. Wrote a book on North Korea and their nuclear programs. We will also talk with Jenny Beth Martin, the president, uh, the honorary chairwoman of Tea Party, Patriots, and more. And tomorrow night, if you're in Denver, 710K NUS, 5 to 8 p.m. Mountain Time. You can also listen online. I'll be doing the Jimmy Sangin Burger Show. Have a great weekend. Stay well, stay healthy. Back Monday, and God bless America.